This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, The Road to Hell, Moral Quandaries and Impossible Choices in Speculative Fiction. And this week, we extend a warm welcome to Lorraine Wilson, who is the author of the forthcoming book, This Is Our Undoing. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hello, Lorraine. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to probably slip and call you Rain, because that's what I'm used to calling you. That's totally you, I will fine. Try. I answer to either. <laughs> Okay, um, so can you tell, I mean, I I hesitate to, to attach a genre to This Is Our Undoing because it has so many elements of so many different genres in, encompassed within the book and yet it is, it's not clearly a mashup of any of them in my opinion. So can you tell us a little bit about This Is Our Undoing? I can try. Like you say, it's a, it's very much a sort of genre blend, which is why I tend to just use the term speculative because that's a broad umbrella it covers yes. all sorts but it's uh it's based in the near future it's um it follows a female scientist a woman called lena living in the rila mountains in bulgaria it's very much a wilderness set setting to the novel and slightly dystopian she has escaped a dangerous past and created this life for herself in this remote nature reserve and her past catches up with her when an enemy is killed and this the repercussions of that put her family in danger and the story kind of follows her struggles to protect her family and also to not become a monster in the process of protecting her family from her old enemies uh, and that's yeah. yeah that's kind of it in a nutshell <laughs> It, it's not the sort of book that really lends itself to being kept in a nutshell. <laughs> in my opinion, there is so much going on. Um, but we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. So um, because most of our listeners are, you know, they're, they're obviously speculative fiction fans, but many of them are also writers as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing journey? Um, <laughs> it's been a while. I've been doing it a while. I actually, I turned to writing um, when I developed disabling illnesses. I was a, I'm a conservation scientist by training. I have a PhD in behavioral ecology and I worked for quite a few years as a, as a conservation scientist around the world. But I then developed um, chronic migraine and other health issues and couldn't do that anymore. And I needed something to keep me sane, to give me some sort of mental focus and uh, reward and sense of of I don't know something to be doing with myself rather than just sitting at home being ill and writing was something I'd always I mean I've always been a bookworm but I'd always kind of toyed with the idea of writing and never done it and I turned to it then and, and just fell in love it was an instant sense of coming home weirdly if that makes sense um, yep. and I've never looked back and I'm just I, I just love it but it's been I don't know how many years now, but I've written a few book, couple of books that are firmly locked away in drawers and not <laughs> coming out ever. Um, and then uh, this is our undoing. Found Luna. I think I think it was on. I was sort of submitting to agents and and publishers for about eighteen months or something, and then it went through a major, major revision. And then I found Luna after that that big revision. Um, 
so yeah and I, I've published short fiction as well I've been publishing short fiction for a few years here and there but this is my first full-length novel so it's it's been a, a long road and with my health and stuff not always smooth but and full of rejections because writing is getting published is is means getting rejected sadly mm -hmm. um but uh it's it's so it's that makes it extra exciting to actually be here and have a book in my hands yeah i mean absolutely from from what i know and um you and Jules obviously have a have a history together, which sounds dubious now. It's like, a, <laughs> well, really Jules dubious. have a history together, uh, which I'm sure we'll, well get we into. Plan to blow up something <laughs> together. <laughs> Buried many bodies, um, which oh I'm God, sure she knows. <laughs> I know, I know everything, and now so do all of our listeners. Um, but they can be trusted. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit about how how you two know each other. Um, but you know, you've had an incredibly interesting life um i mean just you know from your work and stuff like that how much has that influenced your writing and has any of that kind of played into this is our undoing it definitely influences my writing i mean i think um when once you know if you read this is our undoing if you read any of my short fiction as well you can tell that nature is always there mm -hmm. very very much in the foreground okay. and that's because of my you know my my training and my expertise and the fact that I'm a nerd and I know I know birds and flowers and you know trees and whatever ecology and so I can't help but have that go that sort of sneak into my writing um, yeah. and I think having traveled means that I've got a sense of different settings so I find it easy to to construct settings that readers might not be familiar with um, and I really like the thing I really like about about using nature as such a strong aspect of my writing is that I it's it's a really powerful tool as for a writer I think mm. to think about about setting and about the environment um, in a much deeper way because it can add so much to, not term not just in terms of the sort of sensory depth that you're putting your readers into this sort of full immersion kind of experience but also you can use it to underline subtext and sort of unspoken tensions or or contrast with unspoken absolutely going on in the plot so I think I love having I can't imagine writing without the background I've got I think I, I would write very differently if I mm. hadn't come through conservation science yeah. and I love I love being able to play with that in my writing and and use my knowledge to kind of hopefully add depth and and yeah. atmosphere yeah. absolutely I mean, um oh sorry Jules I, I just also wanted to ask sort of in particular then about the sort of the speculative elements as well because I don't know for me nature has something quite mystical about it it it, it has that almost supernatural quality to it even from a very scientific perspective I think you can be an incredibly you know scientific minded person and still find yourself getting caught up in an atmosphere when you're in the wilderness has that kind of influenced any of the speculative elements in your writing absolutely yeah I think I mean I love folklore and I grew up on a very heavy diet of folklore and sort of mythological writing and I think mm. that that... You're in good company there. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, and I think the way that folklore intersects with the environment, with the wilderness, is really, really telling. It 
um, it's very revealing about how we as different societies around the world relate to the natural world and mm. what we're frightened of and what we what we need to do to keep safe what rules we create to keep safe and the stories we build up around the wilderness that surrounds us to make it uh, understandable um, and I, I, I really like that the way that folklore is a lens through which we view the wilderness um, and as, as somebody who has worked in very wild places and very remote places, it doesn't matter how scientific you are and how much you know what all the bird song is and what all the flower species are and stuff. There are moments mm -hmm. when you are miles and miles and miles and miles from the nearest person, other human being. And that's a really interesting experience on an instinctive, emotional level. And there are moments when you are in danger so when you're being stalked by wolves for example or whatever and you become a part of that environment in a way that you aren't you aren't in any other point in your life because you're okay, gonna, can we backtrack that we're make you tell stalked that story. by wolves excuse me <laughs> is, was that just an example or are you about to tell us that this is an experience that you've had this is an experience that i've had yes okay uh, yeah well, I actually they're in the they're in the acknowledgements. Uh, Jules, I don't know if you notice in the acknowledgements of this is our undoing. I actually thank the wolves for not eating me. I um, did see that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it did make me laugh. Very courteous of them. Can you give us I the story, so. please? <laughs> well, it's it's multiple actually. Funnily enough, I uh, the wolves have not eaten me multiple times, which is doubly courteous of them. <laughs> But one time was in I was in Russia. I was working in um, the Tiger Forest in Russia, and we had uh, we always took dogs with us into the forest. And I I thought this was just for company until one of the Russian scientists that I was with explained that this was so that if the wolves attacked us, they would go for the dogs first and give us a chance to escape, which made me feel horrible every time I then called the dogs to heal whenever we went into the forests. Oh. Like, oh come be bait <laughs> but um I did see we were followed a few times by wolves when we were work, walking through the forests then and you you generally wouldn't see them but the dogs would kind of get very close to your legs and you'd hear the odd little footfall around you and I saw one once then sort of a couple of meters away from me and he just gave me a good look over and and then sort of moved on but the time that um, I felt particularly like I might genuinely be on the menu was in Poland, in Bielowieża, which is the most amazing um, forest reserve. And I was radio tracking wolves and they decided to track me instead. Um, <laughs> oh, <God>. and, <laughs> and you can tell on the signal when you're radio tracking how close, roughly, how close the wolves are to you. Mm-hmm. And um, the signal strength would go up. And the, the Polish scientists had told me never to let it get above sort of four because then the wolves were about sort of 30 metres away. And they were saying if, if the signal strength is at five, they're about five metres away or so. And you can't see. The undergrowth is so dense. You can't see a thing. Yeah. But I would I watched the signal strength growing up and then I would back away to drop the signal strength off and it would back up, go back up to three, to four, to five. And I'd back away again and I couldn't see a thing. And I would back and the signal would go down and then it would creep up three to four to five again. And I'd just be like, OK, you're you're all around me. I don't know where to go eat me or don't eat me I don't know you know there's nothing I can do here I'll just try and look distasteful yeah and <laughs> but it's um it's it's an amazing moment to have I think that moment of being genuinely I am 
fully prey in this moment in time and it is I am I am part of the ecosystem again and we're so used to being disengaged from the wilderness as mm. human beings that to be immersed in it in that way and to be fully sort of at its mercy is actually a really wonderful it sounds stupid to say it because I they if they'd been a little bit hungrier they could have eaten me yeah but it's a wonderful thing to have and I'm so it's such a precious memory because mm. you you I don't know, there is something magical about that. And kind of going back to your thing about speculativeness and folklore, the wilderness is such an unknown unknown to us still. Yeah. Even when we, you know, you can categorise it as much as you like, but it's a place where we are generally out of our element. And because of that, there is so much that we are straining to detect and unable to detect because our human senses are so rubbish. So mm. it leaves so much to the imagination. Absolutely. And and I, I love that. I love the dichotomy of, of the scientific knowledge and the, the fact that you can't escape your instincts and your the limits of your sensory awareness. And yeah. that taps into your superstitions and your folklore instantly. Absolutely. You've spoken like a true, um, <laughs> true conservationist going out there. <laughs> your passions are shining through. That is such a fantastic story. Incredible. <laughs> Well, I don't think my family yes, um... like it so much. <laughs> I wonder why. No, no, I imagine, I imagine they were slightly horrified, probably. I can, I can imagine what my mother would say if it had been me kind of thing. So, yeah. <laughs> I, see, I see that point. Um, okay, so Lorraine and I, I can't remember whether you joined the Random Writers and then we met at the Writers Workshop event yeah. or whether it was the other way around. No, I think we met online first and then yeah. we were a real person. Yeah, it's like yes, I'm not just pixels. And, I've had that experience. And code. Jules is just sometimes so fair. You're like, but is she real or is she just <laughs> absolutely speaking from the it's from the very beyond? Cunning AI. <laughs> uh, but yes, on the now defunct Writers Workshop forum, um, Lorraine, I, and various other people, even Madeline, very very briefly, although I don't think you guys cross paths. Um, sort of met and then obviously the writers workshop it, i believe it does it's now jericho writers and it does still run these writing events but i i've not been to any of them um but yes we met up in york uh, a few times which was good yeah and we've sort of shared writing back and forth within the random writers group and, and things so i mean that makes it sound like it's not a very exciting story so i'm going to bring a little bit more interest into it by saying that it you could always, you'd always be like, sort of like, oh, brilliant, you know, all the guys are going to be at the Writers' Workshop event, excellent, and Rain's going to be there, so that means we're going to get at least one really strange story <laughs> about something that's happened to it. I mean, there was one time where um, a, a certain more, more senior writer, shall we say, was, I think, trying to peel off an enthusiastic newbie and she did it rather uncharitably by introducing this person to me and saying, oh, you like science fiction? And so he sort of limped it onto me. And I was trying to hear what what Lorraine and a, a bunch of the other randoms were talking about. And all I caught were the words bubonic plague. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> was this just yes. a casual conversation or are you about to tell me that you had the bubonic plague as well? Uh, I've had the bubonic plague as well. What? Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? I like my near-death experiences. <laughs> 
Why? Well, my daughter will say that it's entirely my own fault, and it kind of is. I got the. I was doing my PhD in Costa Rica in the rainforest, and I this particular field season, I was sharing my uh, little house, my little hut, with a tree rat. And she decided to that she quite liked my mattress. So she kept right. on coming down at night to steal bits of my mattress for her nest. Right. And I didn't stop her because she was cute. And I figured she needed mattress stuffing as much as I did. And then she gave me the plague. I see. So. I see. Okay, that's... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds super dramatic, but actually... As long as you know what it is you've got, you can treat it. And I always went out to these places with the most ridiculous first aid kits and medical emergency kits. So you just dose yourself on the right antibiotics and you're fine. But it, it was, I'd, now this just makes it sound worse. I'd been bitten shortly before I started developing symptoms by a spider that should have killed me. And it didn't. I didn't <laughs> die. But I, I then started to develop plague symptoms and I thought it might have been sort of trail end kind of, I got off lightly, I didn't die, but I did get some symptoms of the spider bite. So it took me quite a long time to diagnose the plague as the plague. So I had the proper like armpit booboos oh my in my gosh. armpits and my neck by the time I was like, oh, for God's sake, Lorraine, this isn't a spider bite. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is the plague. This is the plague. <laughs> See, the other bit of that story that I managed to catch when I was trying to get rid of my overly friendly newbie writer friend was was the fact that she kind of went, yes, and so I took some antibiotics and I went out drinking that night. Yeah, well, that was the spider bite. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> it was funny. It was kind of I, I was walking through across a floating marsh. Don't tell the health insurance people I was doing this, but I was walking across floating marsh, which is very tall vegetation and um uh, I brushed it. I felt something bite me, and I looked down, and uh, there was this spider on my rib cage, and I recognised it instantly, and I kind of thought, okay, ho hum, <laughs> my number's up. Um, and you've got with these particular spiders, you've got about twenty four hours, and it's not a nice death. You kind of hemorrhage from your eyeballs and stuff like that, and there's nothing Jesus. anything can do. <laughs> I know it's not very nice. Um, but there's no there's no treatment there's no cure you just kind of crack on with it and die and also i was you know to it would if i'd made a fuss and gone to, tried to get medical help they'd have flown me out to florida and i would have been hemorrhaging from my eyeballs on a plane and that just seemed less fun than alternatives so and it was my field assistant's birthday and we'd been planning on this big expedition into town to go for drinks which was a big thing because we you know we didn't get into, out out of the um, rainforest very often so I didn't tell anyone and we went out and I got absolutely hammered on margaritas and didn't die so either the spider didn't inject venom or margaritas are a cure for fatal spider bites oh okay all right is this your scientific <laughs> opinion or <laughs> <laughs> My, yeah I should say just in case <laughs> I should say, don't try that one. Don't try that cure. If you get bitten by a spider, go and see the doctors. But um, I got lucky. It was a dry bite. The bite, the spider was just a wee bit annoyed. It felt like someone was holding an iron, a hot iron to my ribs for the next couple of days. But then, um, you know, I didn't hemorrhage from any orifices. So all was good. But I did have a hangover. 
but it was like that but, I'm alive. <laughs> so that could have been the margarita, though, couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, Lord Almighty. <laughs> Um, okay, that's um, incredible. so going back to... Sorry, Madeline, I, I'm not giving you enough time to process your shock. I? I need a week. I'm just going to be lying wide-eyed awake in bed for the next week. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, going back to this is our undoing, because um, in a minute we'll get onto our main topic of discussion today. Uh-huh. But it... You know, there were many, many things that struck me about the book, and it, it's one of those books that's very multi-layered with themes and, and you know, quite astute attention to human nature and things. But I think the really interesting part is that you... It's not really a comfortable book to read. I, I mean, I don't mean that in an offensive way. I just yeah. mean sort of like... I've never been so stressed reading a book that that had very few actual real action sequences in my life. As in sort of waking up at three o'clock in the morning thinking, I think I might just need to go and read a bit more. (laughs) Really, really tense. Um, And most of that was down to, again, this is is why we've shaped the episode around this, uh, was down to the fact that all the way through the book, Lena is, is faced with these series of impossible choices, and mm-hmm. it, it largely boils down to one impossible choice, yeah. um, which is who do you who do you choose? I yeah. mean, do you, and you know how much do you value yourself against somebody else? How do you how much do you value your family against someone else's family? Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting, if very uncomfortable, theme to explore. And I was wondering if you tell us a little bit more about what pushed you in that direction. I think without getting too kind of um, into the whole politics of things, it did stem from this book. I started writing it around about the time of Brexit and Trump being voted in. Uh, and I was feeling very powerless politically and um, with climate change and all the rest of it. Climate change is a, is a bit of a theme in the novel as well. Mm. Um, and I th- I was wrestling with this question of, does it matter what choices you as an individual make in the face of these global existential kind of crises or events? Um, and trying to convince myself that, yes, it did matter. Um, and I think we as individuals are f- faced more and more, I think, as, as this global situations kind of change in the way that they are, with the question of where do you as a person draw the line? And what is the right choice to make in in different situations like, you know, seeing, I don't know, a racist incident happen in public. When is it right for you to intervene? When is it wrong for you to intervene or not safe for you to intervene? Um, And just all sorts of things like that. When is it right to speak up or or whatever? Um, And so I was kind of wrestling a lot with that, with that sense of powerlessness and that sense of how do you know? whether your your own actions are going to have any worth and they're going to make a difference to, to anyone. And does it matter if they make a difference to anyone other than yourself and your sense of being able to hold your head up and say, yeah, I didn't stand for that. I didn't stay silent. Um, so, I t- yeah, I, I think it just, it kind of mutated. And Lena's story itself uh, mutated from that initial beginning and it ended up being slightly different. But But the beginnings are very much... Um, rooted in a sense of how do you stay true to yourself in the face of uh, the 
sort of wider darkness or wider existential crises. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the existential side of things, because that's usually how to get under, you know, you can you can make me watch slasher films and I'll just be like, nah, but you give me something existential <laughs> to fret over. Yeah. And I've got a whole new obsession. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think it actually explores that really well in a way that's, um, in a way that is actually very accessible, but perhaps that people don't necessarily want to sort of access because it is a little bit too realistic, that sense of helplessness. Yeah, I think with, it's, it's a very interesting thing because when it comes to sort of climate change and, and you know the environment and the way that people sort of uh, deal with these massive changes, people only want to deal with it in a very hopeful way. They only want to deal with it in like, you know, it was like, a, oh, look at lockdown, all the animals are coming back. And it's like, okay, but there were larger implications, which, you know, following the end of lockdown one, they're, they're in terms of sort of environmental impact, things got significantly worse again. Um, you know, and, and people try and make these sort of very individual choices, but they don't want to engage with the reality of, of the wider thing. And I think there's also this sense of it's on you as an individual um, with people sort of turning around saying, I can't do anything on my own. It's mm. totally hopeless. And that's an incredibly uncomfortable feeling. And it, it sort of makes people feel quite paralyzed. Okay. So having that in the in the backdrop of a, of a story which... I think ultimately has a very hopeful sort of ending, which ultimately gets to the heart of, of the big issue, which is that as, you know, as an individual, there are still things that you can do and perhaps that's all we can make peace with. Um, yeah. I, th I think really, really works, but it, it, it makes for tense reading. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I mean, you have to make your reader suffer, don't you? Uh, <laughs> weirdly we come um, from the perspective of welcome. you make the character suffer and then the reader suffering is kind of gravy on top of that but I see you've gone straight for the real issue here. Yeah. <laughs> that's not mince words no. okay so we're going to move on to our main discussion for today obviously Lorraine is going to pop in as 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 needed and um this will be very much linked to this is our undoing since you know, one of the themes is impossible choices. Yeah. So I guess the first thing we should probably clarify is what do we mean by impossible choices in narrative terms? Yeah. Um, if we're talking just purely technically, we're talking about a setup where the main character must choose between two or more actions, um, each with its own loaded outcome. Um, there's often no right or easy choice and there is often no choice that has a solely beneficial outcome. It, it sort of, in a nutshell, since, you know, Madeline and I mostly look at speculative fiction, um, in fantasy terms, you could, one example is you could have the, the prophecy type scenario where you have a main character who is acting to prevent a prophecy. Do they act? Yep. Do they not act? Does acting actually cause the prophecy to fulfil itself and become a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy? Um, hate that little nugget. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is just kind of a. It uh, we'll we'll get into why this is so compelling to readers in a minute, but it it's one of those, as Lorraine has just said, uh, you've got to make your reader suffer, and it is actually a very good way of making your reader suffer through making your main character suffer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really is. I think if you've got a choice that 
there, where there is no obvious clean cut right answer you're instantly drawn in aren't you because you're making the reader say what would I do yeah absolutely um and certainly I mean the the whole sort of prophecy trope thing particularly if you're going the further you go back into into sort of fantasy um it, it, it can read as a little bit shallow but if you're using that thing to force an impossible choice um it I think it can immediately make it more engaging because you you again are forcing the reader to engage in a moral quandary mm. um yeah so the most important aspect of the impossible choice scenario or the impossible choice trope is that there will be dire implications no matter how the main character chooses <laughs> So there will be moral and emotional fallout and far-reaching consequences which can affect the main character or their loved ones or perhaps what they've chosen to protect. So, you know, going to extremes, talking about, say, a superhero scenario, they've chosen to protect Earth, maybe. Um, there's going to be far-reaching consequences for the entire Earth, which is quite a lot of weight to put on one character's shoulders. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, <laughs> I, I always love that because it, 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 it's that... It's like a mass, you know, it's it's a thing that's made bigger than what is ever sort of happens in our lives. I mean, most individuals are never in a position where it's like, okay, <laughs> you've got to either sacrifice your sort of your life as a, you know, as a regular person um, or sacrifice the safety of the earth. That is your choice. And I just don't think that's a choice that most people have to face <laughs> for the most part. Um which is why sometimes I think it can be a little bit hit and miss yeah. in terms of fantasy. In terms, it can, and, and it's it's done quite a lot. You, you very often you see in fantasy is like a save the woman you love or save save the planet or or you know, uh, you know, get to go on that date or save the planet. And it, and they use that all the time, particularly in sort of teenage stuff. And it's like, oh no! And <laughs> past a certain point, you're like, okay, but. But what about some other choices <laughs> instead? Like, why, why are we not exploring other things? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of variations on this this particular trope. So, you know, yeah. for example, as Madeline just touched on, the main character must choose between saving a lover, family member, friend, and preventing the world from being destroyed. So pretty much all sort of Superman, Lois Lane interactions and incarnations at some point will face this one, because I think that's canon. Yes. <laughs> and yes, depending on how it's written and how it's directed etc um it can be a little bit much because you think well yes but i also live on this planet so maybe i should look at the planet first and apologize later kind of thing <laughs> if they're still alive um uh but yeah uh I you can also sorry please I, carry on. <laughs> I think that kind of trope and i'm thinking of like the spider-man uh, now where he's faced with the choice between going on a date or saving the world um, I think that kind of works in that sense if the protagonist is young because they yeah. don't yeah. have yet that sense of global perspective that you would expect a 40 year old to perhaps have and so your life yeah. when you're 15 is is about your friends and your immediate world and it's not about wider responsibilities as much perhaps so I can kind of I think yeah. it's more convincing in young adult fiction than it is when you're faced with those kind of that kind of uh, binary choice in older characters 
I completely agree. And I think the other thing is that ultimately the reason that that's engaging, particularly in younger fiction, is it touches on something else, which is the sense of responsibility that young adults can have or can can have forced onto them, which is that a 15-year-old realistically should not be out there yeah. saving the planet. They should be enjoying themselves these are major you know moments of development for them it's not actually healthy um and so often as well what you get is you get these like these minders you know the older characters the nick furies of the world and stuff like that like like in spider-man far from home when you know uh, he's like you know i'm just a friendly neighborhood spider-man that's reasonable that's reasonable for him to say look okay maybe i just want to just do some stuff within my block i'm just a friendly neighborhood spider-man and <laughs> nick fury goes bitch you've been a space um which is which is not it's not actually nick fury but you know what i mean um that's not a responsible thing you know to put on uh, to put on a young adult it's not a young a, a responsible thing to put on a teenager and i guess it's also why you know everyone was like oh you know screw iron man in that first um movie and i was like actually no because i think he was like look this kid is gonna go out do there and do it anyway let's manage it so that he actually has a chance to have a life <laughs> you know um say what you want but that's kind of how i i read it but i think the reason that that is so successful is it touches on something that a lot of teenagers are going through, whereby they do suddenly have more of a conscious understanding of the wider world, and they start to have a, a greater conscious understanding of some of the expectations that might be placed on them. And because there are also kids who are in those situations where it's not about saving the world, but they might be full-time carers. Yeah. You know, they might have to sort of be thinking about job and work for their parents and, you know, because because they come from, um, you know, low-income backgrounds or things like that. You know, these are also kids, you know, in, in, in certain minority communities who suddenly become conscious of the fact that, you know, they could get stopped and and killed yeah. you know these are all suddenly things that you become conscious of as a teenager so it kind of makes sense within that sort of in, in that area but when it doesn't make sense you've got like <laughs> you've got superman and he's like oh no <laughs> it's like dude you've been at this for a while like this is now a career choice <laughs> you have taken on the responsibility <laughs> and i can understand having a little bit of drama um, within it but uh yeah one way that i really actually kind of enjoyed sort of a bit where they where they did this but they kind of converted it a little bit was um the flash the the flashpoint paradox the animated um version where flash uh barry allen in this case rather than wally west um go is sort of is goaded by the reverse flash and actually ends up using his powers to go back in time to save his mother. His mother dying when he was a, a young boy. So he goes back in time to save her. And in doing so, he creates an alternative universe. He changes history. Um, and this, and what happens is that this kind of the sonic blast, it goes throughout, you know, as he's going throughout, it messes stuff up. And the world which emerges is horrifying. The Atlanteans um, and the Amazonians are at war with one another and the rest of the Earth is suffering. You know, Clark Kent was captured and has been in a lab his entire <laughs> life. You know, like, it's horrifying. This is this is the end of the world sort of awful stuff. And he meets with Batman, who actually turns out not to be 
the Batman he knows, but actually Bruce Wayne's father instead, who watched his son and his uh, who watched his son get killed, and his wife became the Joker. Oh, <laughs> just cracked okay. and went mad. It's a fantastic sequence because she's there, she's sobbing, holding her son's body, and he's got blood, and she's got blood, and she holds it to her hand, and the sobbing slowly becomes laughter, and she looks back, and the handprint of blood has created the smile on her face. Like it is. Wow visually stunning it's uh, it was so creepy i was like oh my god um and it was it was this really really interesting thing so he does that because he hasn't thought of the consequences of it and in the end he has to make the decision to go and it's not even a hard decision for him he sees the destruction he tries to sort things out he tries to stop it um and then yeah he has to go back and he has to go back and stop himself going back in time um, and it's incredibly engaging but of course the most difficult thing is that actually at first he goes back in time and he's, he's suddenly like I don't have my powers because mm-hmm. of course he doesn't have his powers because he didn't end up in the same situation because his mother didn't die so you know um, he, he eventually has to sort of go back, he has to stop himself um, and in doing so he also delivers a letter from Bruce Wayne's father to Bruce Wayne in his back in his timeline and i thought this is a really good way of doing that that choice think about something which is deeply meaningful to him something which had a profound effect on him and something which but he knows he has to do and for me that was really engaging without it being a bit without yeah, it being cliche. and still keeping it large um yeah, exactly. I mean, oh, very large. Oh my god, it's so harrowing. <laughs> it's like um, I find, and you, you both made an excellent point about the, you know having the, having the fate of the world hinge against someone get, getting to go on a date, kind of thing, or or saving one single loved one, um, being fitting so well for young adult fiction because that is that is your world at the time. Um, scaling it back, yeah. and I think this is something that you kind of come to appreciate more as an adult you can have a main character who can only save one loved one. So they're choosing between loved ones. Um, and I'm going to bring Ray- yeah. Raymond on this because um, part of part of the, the horrible choice Lena <laughs> is continually having to make <laughs> is, is having to pick between people. But um, you guys have seen the film Sophie's Choice? Yeah, a long oh, time ago. Not, not yeah. speculative, extremely harrowing. Um, Without going into too many details, um, basically, Sophie ends up in America, having managed to get out of Auschwitz, and it you know there's a whole lot of backstory as to how she ended up there in the first place. Um, but she's been forced to choose not. Basically, the main character thinks that Sophie's had to choose one thing, but actually, what she's had to choose is between her two children, and uh-huh. it, it it is an absolute impossible choice because if you could make a choice that would save at least one of your children wouldn't you make it but what if the price is your other child so it it is incredibly horrific in that respect yeah i think that's literally every parent's nightmare isn't it definitely to to you know to be in the position where you had to choose between between your children I would say that that's probably the ultimate impossible choice at, at a small scale yeah. like that. Um, I'm, I think every other kind of choice between like a husband and a child and stuff is it doesn't actually measure up to choose. Yeah, or between to, yourself and your child. Not to be mean to husbands, but yeah, and I think choosing between because 
you're responsible for those those two children I think you have a duty of care whereas you don't necessarily have the same duty of care towards other adults whatever their relationship to you might be um, and so yeah the betrayal is absolute whichever way you go yeah definitely yeah. um so I mean in this without spoilers obviously but in this is our undoing you know children do feature quite large don't they they do. I've got a few children in there who play quite different roles. And yeah, Lena has to has to make a choice. Um, and whichever way she goes, she's she's betraying somebody and betraying somebody who is innocent, largely. Um, mm. And it's yeah. So I think the thing about giving a character an impossible choice is it has to be it has to force them to really dig deep into themselves and really face up to their own uh, moral sort of standards and, and the the standards that they hold themselves to. And I think the thing with Lena is that she has held herself to a certain standard and judged, fought against people who didn't live up to that standard. She has resisted the dystopian kind of regime and the politics in the book. And she's so to be faced with a choice that might make her as bad as those people that she has fought against all her life is is a real sort of point of a breaking point for her can she become the monster mm. figuratively speaking um yeah. or literally speaking depending on how you define monsters i suppose um so and i think yeah i think i think that's important to make it something that really forces the character to look inward and to face mm. their own demons internally. Um, I think it's also something that what you want to do is you want to divide your readers because I think I also think when when you're reading you're more likely to say, well, I just make the ruthless decision. Yeah. I'd just be like, oh, well, you know, I've got to do what I have to do to protect my own or stuff like that. Um, and what you really want to do is you want to get people thinking, okay, but when reality strikes, yeah, can you make that choice? Yeah, definitely. And I think to do that, well, I mean, in This Is Our Undoing, I had to be, um, I have a, a teenage boy who it would be very easy. And I think he's he's not particularly likable for, I don't know how you found him, Jules Zander, but he's, he's, he's not an easy character to like, no. and he's not an easy character to, to connect with. But I had to make him empathic. And I had to make, try and make the reader see that, he is a product of his parents and his circumstances and that doesn't necessarily make him a bad person and tarred by the same brush as his parents yeah definitely i mean he, he hasn't he was yeah he, I, I mean i found him quite infuriating but at the same time yeah. he was incredibly understandable and relatable because he was in the process of grieving and with that comes a lot of attendant anger and powerlessness and he was acting out in a way that you know, unfortunately, he did have a few skills that made that acting out quite dangerous to Lena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and so I think it was important to try and make him human in that way and not just a baddie because you can't, the moment you give a character a choice between um, uh, being, being sort of heroically noble and good towards the bad guys and being good towards the good people that's an easy choice for a reader to make they'll just go well sacrifice the bad guys mm. they don't deserve to be saved so you have mm. to if if that's the kind of choice you're making you're 
you're giving your character, which is what I've done, you have to make the bad guys human and you have to make your reader not quite so comfortable with the idea of pushing them over the cliff. Yeah. That's not a spoiler. I don't yeah. push anybody over the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you weren't even going to bother with it. With I don't push anybody over the cliff. In this book. In this book. All the, all the truths are coming out today. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so other examples of this, this trope, just very briefly, um, a main character must choose whether to act on incomplete information or not. So in a variation on the whole, will the prophecy become self-fulfilling if I do something um, version of the trope? This, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be speculative in origin, but you quite often find it in things like spy thrillers. So um, you've got the, uh, it's George, you know, um, John le Carre's George Smiley character. Who, by the way, is way better than James Bond, in my opinion. <laughs> I just, he's just—I mean, it's just things like he cleans his glasses with the end of his tie. Obviously, he's better than James Bond. Um, <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> he's quite often working with an incomplete set of data, which means that you know, if you don't act, refusing to act at all is also a choice. But quite often, not acting at all means that you—you you might get the disadvantages from both or even more choices all happening rather than if you make a choice then at least you get the disadvantages from that one choice um and with spy thrillers i think again you have the impossible choice thing but the reader isn't necessarily taken into the, the author's confidence in terms of what exactly the author knows is going to happen and what's really going on behind the scenes so it's an impossible choice based on an incomplete set of data and i have to say i personally find that quite compelling as well <laughs> Yeah, I think the sort of the sort of the progress of that one is also when it's an impossible choice and it's incomplete data when it comes from an enemy. So when you have to team up with an enemy in order to kind of get, um, you know, uh, to meet a common goal. Um, I th a good example of this is I just finished. Well, I'm almost finished reading uh, Rule of Wolves, Leah Bardugo. Um, which is the second book in the King of Scars trilogy. And without giving any spoilers away, there is a situation where the good guys have to work with someone who has betrayed them significantly in the past and whom they cannot trust on any accounts. They know they cannot trust, but this person has the information that they need. And in order to get this information, they actually need to agree to something which seems harmless but they're suspicious but it seems harmless and of course you know they have to make that choice they have to say okay do we take the risk of doing this and knowing that this person has got other plans must absolutely have an ulterior motive are we prepared to act quickly enough for that um you know do the do the do the pros out outweigh the cons and it's not just that this is a bad thing for us it's it's a potentially bad thing for the nation of Ravka as well. So it's it's incredibly engaging yeah. in that way. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, another variation on the trope is the it's kind of like the whole do I save my lover, do I save the world thing, but it, this is more a kind of a main character who is a lot more morally grey. They're usually much more morally grey and they're choosing between personal happiness and often political advantage or power in some other form. And an example of this would be Seth Dickinson's The Traitor Baru Cormorant. Um, I've spoken about this book before because I really do love this series, but Baru 
um, comes from a nation which is which is colonized by the empire, and she ends up going through their school system. So she kind of understands the empire and gets held up as as you know a shining example of what happens when you know the quote unquote savages are properly you know are properly tamed etc. But Baru has her own mission and she wants to take the empire apart. So she's going to do it by beating up them at their own game. Um, the the problem <laughs> the problem is that when you play those political games you can get lost in them especially if you're a very clever person and that is what does start to happen to her through the series um, and she ends up sacrificing someone that she is in love with later you kind of think that that person agreed to that because it would advance Baru and Baru might then actually manage to take down the empire but you're left with this distinctly icky feeling as in it's kind of like you you kind of really stepped over a line there and it, it's it's not that we can't understand what you did it's just a case of we're having difficulty imagining ourselves actually going that far mm. yeah yeah i think there is i mean there are books that that do the whole uh, kind of unsavory hero quite well but i yeah I think it's a it's a really fine line as a writer, isn't it, to create a character that's actually morally quite questionable, and is possibly not someone you'd actually like if you met them in real life, and and then ask the reader to empathise with that person, and the choices they're making. I think that's it's a skill if you can get that right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I think handsomeness and humour <laughs> go a long way in, in helping with that. If, the, if they're good looking on screen or they're played by a popular actor and they're funny, we're, we're willing to forgive a lot of people. So like, are we back to Kerrigan from from Lee Bardugo? Yeah, yeah, we're back. We're back to to, to the Darkling. Um, apparently, the thing is, like, I was always a little bit like, Meh. <laughs> it's always like it's between Mal and the Darkling, and I'm like, but have you considered Nikolai? Um, but apparently, no one had. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> uh, but no, I was actually thinking of of Loki as one example, oh, yes. but also from a very personal perspective, I have a character in the Hamashia cycle called Aaron. Um, Aaron Foucault. Mm-hmm. He's an assassin. He's a really bad person. <laughs> like, you would not want to meet him in person. This is a this is a man who is just just blithely goes around killing people. He has no real sense of conscious, you know, of conscience rather. Uh-huh. He's also unconscious most of the time. Um, he he does what he wants. He follows particular orders. So he he's kind of he's a little bit crazy, but he 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 is loyal to. A very select number of people and will do what they tell him to do and that's it otherwise he just does what he wants he's not a good person um i know for a fact that he's the favorite character of a few people and i think the large reason for that is first of all they don't have to deal with him in real real life you'd run a mile if he had to and he'd chase you um but also because he he's funny he talks in a very particular way he talks using lemon slang he's funny he's got that kind of that open sort of he he allows for sort of situational humor as well which very much helps and he's kind of charismatic a little bit in that way um and so we're willing to forgive it in fiction but it's a very specific thing um and it can be quite hit and miss i yeah, think yeah definitely it's like um, uh, 
Baru Cormorant is actually quite a likeable character, particularly if you're someone who likes your characters to be clever and competent, which I do wherever possible. Um, and then you realise that at some point the game has become the end in and of itself <laughs> and that maybe she's not quite as relatable yeah. as, as, as you thought originally. Um, okay, so final yeah. sort of trope for impossible choices is the best, it's kind of like the lesser of two evils or the lesser of many evils. Um, when you're kind of do- having to do the cold equations about how many people are going to die rather than how many people can you save, it's how many people is, is this particular disaster going to going to affect and that's something that sort of comes up a lot in science fiction and in uh, dystopian fiction as well obviously an offshoot of sci-fi um i'm just thinking of yeah basic uh, this is a short story i wrote and i don't think i did it very well but what i was trying to do um what i was trying to do was you have a, a, a nation of very very sick people through one way or another and the the basically the the cure for for this sickness is on this hitherto undiscovered planet but it you know getting the cure is actually going to wipe out the people in this area on that planet so how it's kind of a you know who do do you have the right to go in and take something away from somebody else in order to save everyone else it's the omelets and eggs thing um I might revisit that story at some point. But, I mean, it's, it's something that kind of comes up in a lot of Star Trek, particularly DS9, things like that. Yeah. I think one of the things, I guess, with sci-fi and sort of space opera type things is, like you mentioned earlier, about knowing knowing all the facts and being able to make a decision knowing all the facts. And in sci-fi, you tend to have those facts. You tend to have kind of, yeah, there's that this many people on this planet that, that we might blow up or this many people on the spaceship that we might save um whereas in real life you often don't have the exact uh that all the data to make your decision based on so it's a slightly different conundrum i think that you're faced with in when you've got that certainty about the the facts and figures it's a very different um dilemma to face your to give your character yeah definitely it's like um did you ever watch the expanse no, I haven't watched that yet. Um, but again, that you, you've basically got your belters who sort of live in the asteroid belt. You've got the people who live on Earth who tend to be very privileged because they've managed to hold on to property there. And you've got the people who live on Mars who've obviously developed in a completely different way because they're in this Martian colony and Mars is not well known for being, you know, particularly habitable for humans. <laughs> um and again, you know, they're kind of all at loggerheads with each other, partly because of the wealth and privilege issues and the fact that, you know, the belters tend to be quite sickly and um, only the, you know, they've got high infant mortality rates and things like that. And then what comes onto the scene is this this new substance, which could be a powerful biological weapon. And it becomes, an, it becomes a, a, a grab to get who can get hold of the biological weapon and therefore control the flow of, of finances and your the main characters in that accidentally come across one tiny tiny sample of this stuff and it's the last sample and it's uh, do we just destroy it or do we hide it somewhere <laughs> because we might need it in future i've really boiled down something complex to something mm. very simple there but um <laughs> but that's essentially <laughs> but as you as you say you've got the statistics when you're working with sci-fi usually or you've got the mm. the estimated statistics um whereas if you're looking at 
a different a different genre then you're not working with a complete set of data yeah yeah it's it's um it's the what is it's what's it called the trolley problem uh, with the train uh, is it the tram yeah. problem the train tracks yeah 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 um I think that ultimately is what it boils yeah, down yeah. to. It is both, both choices are wrong. What both choices choose? are equally wrong. It's yeah. just can, you know... Yeah. I think what... Do you accept the, the sin of inaction evils. or the sin of action? Yeah. yeah. And and I think that's the thing, like, when you've got... It, 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 you can boil it down to numbers and how many people live on this, you know, this bit and this bit, and how many people will die with answer A or answer B. But I think it boils down to what the person making the choice will carry. And what it will do to them and that's got to be I think yeah. as a writer that's got to be where you start because that's that's what's going to pull the reader in surely is the the internal cost not just I mean the drama and the explosions and the blah 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 but but the internal this is what your character's got to walk away from this decision usually unless yeah. the decision is my life over theirs but that tends to be actually less of an impossible choice um, so they've got to walk away they've got to carry this whatever they do and that's really that's I I mean I'm obsessed with looking into psychology of character, but that really fascinates me. Yeah, definitely. Mm. You're you're absolutely right. It always makes me think of um, original Star Trek with 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 Jim Kirk um, and his home planet, where they were in a situation where there weren't enough resources, and so this kind of this lottery was created, whereby um, half of the population would be killed so that the other half of the population could survive. And it was obviously this sort of totalitarian regime situation going on. Which isn't great. <laughs> for it really are. <laughs> <laughs> it really, really is. <laughs> um, and I always, uh, it always strikes me because they, you know, later on there's a whole thing. And again, I don't want to give too many spoilers. They they think they sort of meet up with the guy who was responsible and some people can forgive him and some people absolutely can't forgive him. Um, but he is sort of just getting on with his life, as it were. And there is that question of what choice do you make if you know half of the population are going to die or that the whole of the population might die what choice do you make? And how do you then choose who dies? How do you then, you know, that's an impossible choice. And I would have been really interested to see a little bit more from the dictator's perspective, because he had to be a dictator, didn't he? I do not you remember know, this episode at all, the... because you've gone back to original Star Trek. And <laughs> I have to say, the ones original that stick in my head tend um, to know... be a bit more whimsical than this, but... <laughs> I, so yeah, I'm, I mean, to be honest, it, it all involves like an acting troupe who come on board, and the woman is the one who goes crazy, um, and naturally because it's original Star Trek. But hey ho, and to think she could have been happy as a woman, um, original Star Trek line. But yeah, it's uh, it always struck me because there there is no you know there's no way around it, and there's. I guess for some reason that always does, and again we're back with Leah Bardugo, is that line with, with General Kerrigan um, where he says, fine, make me your villain. <laughs> oh, that's a lovely line. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, the guy is cray, right? Okay, he's, he he's batshit bonkers. Um, 
And he's massively egotistical. He definitely wants to be the saviour. He's kind of lost perspective because he is immortal and all that jazz. So, like, my my patience for him is quite limited. <laughs> but there is something interesting there, is that he ultimately does have a larger goal. And that you could say that that larger goal is righteous. Um, not necessarily how he goes about it, but it's righteous in, in some way or another. Um and to do that, he has made sacrifices and he's killed other people. It's often, it's obvious that the sacrifices that he's made have been other people have had to sacrifice things, not him. But regardless, you know, he's he's doing these things for a greater goal because he is trying to create a world which is safe for Grisha. Yeah, it's that classic um, that they have to be the hero of their own story, don't they? If you're going to write a realistic exactly, villain, yeah. then they, you know. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And, and, I think for me, it always is good because you can't forgive him for what he's done, but you are also looking at it from from the perspective of the heroes. Now, I think in the case of General Kerrigan, the problem is that if you look at it from General Kerrigan's point of view, it's only from General Kerrigan's point of view, and he is still a massive dick. But, <laughs> the, but you he's know, so pretty. The concept is there. He's he's he is very pretty, and I think Ben Barnes does him justice. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, again, something I quite enjoyed in The Rule of Wolves is that you get this point with Nikolai where he looks at it and he suddenly goes, I understand why he did this thing, what the difference would have made. And actually, you know, the what, you know, what the results of actually stopping Kerrigan are in terms of the fate of Ravka. Um, and that's not to say that Kerrigan is generally right, but you see his perspective a little bit more. And it does point out, it make that point, which is that, that uncomfortable point, which is that sometimes the difficult decisions can only be made by a dictator. And it's why, you know, in times of crisis, psychopaths tend to kind of come to the forefront. And I'm not saying psychopaths as in, ah, chain, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but people who are, who are genuine psychopaths and sociopaths who can make those very difficult decisions uh, for the greater survival, for the net happiness, the net survival of all. Um, or in the case of General Kerrigan, his massive, you know, need to sit on a pedestal and have a huge amount of hero worship. But, you know, also the survival of, of the Grisha. <laughs> Okay. Well, we we definitely took away that Madeline is in Camp Nikolai in the, this particular series. We did. Yeah, I was. Picking I up am so in Camp. <laughs> so in Camp Camp Nikolai. I mean, I did like him as a character. He's a very intriguing character. So I'm not going to lie about the dark thing. Okay. Um, yeah. So Nikolai's a good boy. He's a good boy. <laughs> Let's have a quick look at why exactly, in technical terms, impossible choices are so compelling in fiction for the readers, but also for the writers who write them. <laughs> um, so from the technical perspective a forced choice creates action or tension uh, which gives the gives us the plot or helps to drive it um, so putting your main characters back against the wall generally creates storytelling gold there you go storytelling gold that's what we're all aiming for yeah definitely yeah. <laughs> you want to wake someone up at three o'clock in the morning want. wondering what happens next <laughs> <laughs> you want people to put the book down and be like, okay, well, it's time to sleep now, <laughs> and then get back up again. Nope, <laughs> it is not time to sleep. It is time to find out what happens next. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. It's that, isn't it? It's the, it's the, what would I do if I was in that position? Yeah, definitely. And not actually being able to answer it straight away yourself, let alone, you know, having mm -hmm. the character be able to resolve it straight away. 
and if you know it, it's one thing if the character spends six chapters sort of seesawing over a decision but if if the readers made a decision within the first paragraph of realizing what the choice is that's not going to hold them it needs to keep the reader kind of yeah. questioning even after they finished yeah. the book you know you put the book down and you go well would I you know would I really have done that am I really happy with the way that book ended and yeah I think that that uncertainty is is what's gonna stick with people yeah absolutely yeah I do feel like if you if if you're you're sort of shouting at the book constantly the character like what are you doing obviously that's yeah. the wrong that's the wrong choice that just becomes frustrating past a certain point yeah definitely yeah. but if it is a, a genuine I don't know which way I would jump I mean you've created that bond of empathy with the character or the, the writer has created that bond of empathy with the character and you the reader cannot get free until <laughs> until something falls one yeah. way or the other um, I think there's also the whole it create it. You know, the impossible choice creates a certain sense of sympathy, um, especially if the choice is not made willingly, if it's something that's been forced on the character. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And I think another good thing about it is that uh, generally it means there's no 100% happy ending because whatever choice that character has had to make, there are downsides. There's a cost either to them or to other people or to, you know, ideally both. Ideally, that sounds really mean. <laughs> Um, (laughs) or even better (laughs) it is all coming out (laughs) Um, but it's not I mean I think I think anybody who's grown up with folklore and whatever uh, like is used to a story and likes a story that doesn't tie up everything in a neat little happy bundle at the end and that's you know going back to the beginning that's very folkloric I think that tradition and I think impossible choices give us that they give us an ending that is at best bittersweet and I think that's good. Yeah. I like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You might get some happiness. Um, and as we were talking earlier, obviously, impossible choices allow us to explore moral quandaries. Um, so uh, we, we keep talking about Star Trek, but I'm going to mention Deep Space Nine, a particular episode, which is a favourite of mine called In the Pale Moonlight, in which um, <laughs> basically the Federation and Bajor are losing the war against the Dominion. Um various planets and things have been invaded things are going very bad there's more lists of casualties going up every day and benjamin cisco is sort of in the middle of it thinking we desperately need allies and he engineers assist uh, he engineers a situation very much like the you know what supposedly was behind the sinking of the lusitania where he brings the romulans into the war when they'd been neutral on the side of the federation in order to have extra extra troops basically and what's really interesting is yes it is an impossible choice because either he carries on in the way he does and more more of his people more of his allies keep dying more ships get destroyed because the dominion are pretty unbeatable or he does this thing which brings the romulans in with their tech and their warlike capabilities and he has allies and they might be able to beat the Dominion back enough to finally get reinforcements. But he's kind of become a monster to do that. And he acknowledges at the end of the episode yeah. that this is something that he's always going to have to live with. And and he, you know, you can hear him. He sort of says, I can live with it. And he says it three times and he says it in a different way each time. And the first time it's kind of like he sounds like he's trying to convince himself. 
And the second time, it's almost a realisation. And the third time, it's like, yes, I, I can live with it. That the price of it is my conscience. And it, it's always kind of yeah. raised, raised goosebumps. <laughs> it's one of the best Star Trek episodes, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's this whole... It's this change. It's this massive change which is brought about with what is essentially, you know, a lie. Yeah. And, and you know, that he, he will have paid for it in, in blood. He's paid for it in people's lives by bringing, you know, the Dominion were going to leave the Romulans alone because they weren't, they weren't fussed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, eh. But the thing is, I think the Dominion would have gone after the Romulans eventually, so... Yeah, um, but again, then that's sort of like theorising without the full set of data, isn't it? Because we don't know for... So, yeah. so it's one of those where... We, we don't. It's do you sacrifice your... Weirdly, it's kind of, you know, Lena's got that whole sort of do I sacrifice my, my own integrity or not? You know, what is the price of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Which is, it's a, it's a, in some ways it's a harder choice to make because it's so intangible. Yeah. Because you don't... Yeah. You, it's hard to envisage yourself as a baddie because we are, we are you know, we're all... Um, centering ourselves and we all see the best of or try to see the best of ourselves or believe the best of ourselves so to see yourself as the baddie and to see yourself becoming a monster is really hard to envisage so how do you predict whether you will be able to live with that cost definitely it's not when we've talked in our previous episodes about villains and things we you know no one wakes up and thinks i think i'll become adolf hitler or pol pot or something you know it's not like a life goal (laughs) today today's the day guys (laughs) baby steps it's a series of choices maybe even not very significant choices until one day you make the choice and you look back at everything you've done the culmination of it and sort of you know, if you have any conscience, you kind of think, oh, bugger, you know, maybe I'm the bad guy. <laughs> or maybe you don't. Maybe at that point you're so oh, no. far gone you can't see you're the bad guy. Hans, I'm the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> we do have skulls on our hats. Um. <laughs> you kind of think it would be easier if you didn't know, if you yeah. couldn't see it. Yeah. If you were convinced you were still on the right path. Yeah, definitely. And still making necessary yeah. choices. And I think at a certain point it becomes part of your narrative, doesn't it? Whereby you say this is necessary because and you make yeah. excuses and reasons for your actions. Yeah. Yeah. I think weirdly enough it, it can tie very nicely in with and Jules and I have talked about this before in another episode that, you know, the sins of the father thing, which is that you make those choices and perhaps you make them saying, I will be the villain, but for the freedom of others. Except, you know, there is... The consequences always come back, and if not for you, then for other people, for your children, for your nation, you know. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. That was something I found... I mean, I first read Dune when I was 14, and I think it's not so much it went over my head, but I just definitely sort of connected with the characters and didn't really think about it in broader terms. And it was only when... I reread it again in my late 20s and then read some of the subsequent books, which, you know, if Matt Willis is listening to this, okay, Matt, we all agree that God Emperor didn't happen, okay? Um, (laughs) It's not fun. But basically, I think it's in Dune Messiah, Paul Atreides, the main character, who you've been rooting for all the way through Dune, even though he literally started a religious war in order to get revenge on, you know, the death of his father and 
the ruination of his house and family. Um, so he's not really the good guy. <laughs> um, you get to Dune Messiah, and he's he basically emperor, emperor of the known universe. And he starts talking about Hitler, and it's really disturbing when he starts giving you the figures. He's like, yeah, there was a dictator back in the 20th century on Earth, you know, Earth that we lost. We don't know where Earth is anymore. And he killed X number of people in order to try and create what I've actually created. I only killed X number of people. And it's so many hundreds of times, hundreds of thousands of times more people than who died during World War Two. And that's a, oh, OK, I might have been rooting for the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the thing. If you can understand why. Uh, somebody's made, even if they make the wrong choice or what you, you as the reader might see as the wrong choice in an impossible choice if you can understand why they've made it if they, you can empathise with their grief that's driven them into it or whatever it is then you're going to kind of root for them anyway even if it's a mistake yeah. aren't you? Yeah, definitely Yeah. Okay, um, let's wrap this up then, so basically uh, well we, we've obviously talked about impossible choices why they're compelling I'm now going to, I feel like I've talked about a lot of my favourite kind of impossible choice scenarios. So obviously Star Trek and Dune, etc. So um, Lorraine and Madeline, what are your favourite impossible choice scenarios? Uh, well, I, I do feel like I've, I've sort of mentioned quite a few. So I'm going to take a step <laughs> back um, and, and, and ask Lorraine to kind of take the, uh, the reins here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't know. I was thinking before I came on, and one of the ones that I think resonates with me is um, N.K. Jemisin's fifth season trilogy, and the mother in that, and maybe it's because I'm a mum, that it kind of struck a chord, and because it's such a quiet and s slow, impossible choice that she is faced with, and it's an interesting one because she is faced with either putting her child in danger or eventually abandoning her child by dying. And that's the choice she has. So she chooses to slowly die and thereby abandon her child. So it's a really interesting choice as a mum. Do you betray, do you put your child in danger or do you abandon them? Yeah. Which one is worse as a mum? Which one does more damage to mm. your child? And it's such a quiet choice going through that book. And it happens so slowly and it's so deftly done that it really, I love it. I think it, I mean, I, I love that, that trilogy anyway and so did a few other people I think but um it's yeah I uh, that really struck a chord with me I think that one's going to stick with me yeah definitely mm. again I think we've got a little bit of the you can see your your love of folklore coming in there as well um the whole the abandon yeah the, the child abandonment thing um and you know at what point do you make I mean I think the reason why the sort of the changeling mythos always struck me so hard was because, you know, at the root of it is the story of we have a starving family and there is a hungry baby that just needs more and more and more. Yeah. And I have to make the decision between the children I already have or myself and the children I could potentially have again. Mm -hmm. um, and our whole general future, because having a family wasn't just a, a thing of pleasure, it was a thing of practicality as well. And having a child who might be um, a financial burden or, or might be perceived as a financial burden, particularly during times of crisis, particularly during times of famine. And that actually it or having a child whom at the time, you know, couldn't receive any help or wouldn't have sort of quality of life. And again, this is the perception again during, you know, times of crisis 
do we leave that child to die for the the embetterment of the family? And that's an impossible choice. I think that's a really, really difficult and harrowing choice that people did have to make. And the fact is that, you know, during particularly in Ireland, um, but I'm sure across families, I just know about the Irish one, you know, children were sort of sent out into the world. They were sort of abandoned. And you see that in Hansel and Gretel and things like that, because there was almost this sense of they will starve here. They will absolutely starve to death at home here. But if I send them out there, there might be a chance. The, the chance is that they will probably die either way, but there might just still be a chance. Um, but I am abandoning them in the process. And that is... Yeah, harrowing. definitely. I mean, you just think of um, London post-Second World War and the poorer echelons and the fact that, you know, we didn't really have contraception available. And there are quite a number of well-documented cases of new babies being smothered because the family already had children and they could not physically afford to feed another one, as in they would be looking at having to go into a workhouse. And if you know anything about the London workhouses of that time, they tended to split families up. Children were taken away from parents. Um, they were they were basically places of slave labour. Um, they were utterly, utterly horrific. And, but again, you know, smothering your child after it's born and saying, oh, well, you know, the baby was stillborn is also really horrific. It is. It absolutely is, and and again, this is this is also. I think it's worth mentioning. This is not an an, an old phenomenon. This is not a well. We're past that. No, you look in at China, um, where you know there was the the one child rule, um, and people wanted sons. They didn't want daughters for various reasons, um, and because of that, so many children were killed um, because people would be trying for sons, they would have daughters, they'd have to get rid of those daughters. But they're also in a position where, you know, let's say you had a child and you got pregnant again for whatever reason. What do you do then? You know, you've got to make a kind of decision. Do you you let one child live? Um, Do you break the law? What what's the situation? Not and then not even considering the whole the poverty angle as well. I mean, it's it's harrowing. Yeah. It is. I think there's a the wider thing about um, danger to to that children are in, and how we normalise and how we build up sort of uh, folklore, basically, uh, present day around dangers that children are exposed to. And I think one of the ones that really fascinates me is people parents sending their kids to school in America with bulletproof backpacks, and just you know you're exposing your your children to this immense danger and you're it there's a mm. there's a kind of culture arising around it and a way of explaining that danger away and it's the same as the changeling myth and all the rest of it it's it we evolve these stories that we tell ourselves to make mm. danger something controlled and normal and tangible and, and not so frightening and I, yeah. I you know I think we're seeing that present day happening with you know, with shooter risks in schools in the States and under other situations yeah. as well. Um, well, it, it's the whole, oh, nuclear explosion, just hide beneath yeah, your desk. Yeah, that's another classic it's one. Like, yeah. that, that won't do yeah. anything for you, but you will. <laughs> yeah. But it, it gives you the illusion. It's a story that can be told. Yeah, it's so. like the stay on the path, 
you know, Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf Won't Get You. It's like it's it's exactly the same yeah. thing. It's it's providing a set of folklore, a set of rules that yeah. give you an illusion of safety. Yeah, I do love that. It's like stay on the path and the wolf won't get you. <laughs> um, and it, it, but it's the thing that I also like is that you know she said don't don't talk to the wolf, don't don't talk to the wolf, don't talk to any strangers, and stay on the path. But the fact of the matter is that the wolf was on the path, <laughs> and what. I mean, what would have happened if she just ignored him? Would would he have just gone, ah, bugger. Can't see her. She well, hasn't spoken to me. them's the rules. <laughs> As a wildlife She's alone biologist, on this... the wolf's more likely to be on the path than not. <laughs> and then you're into sort of customs of politeness and hospitality and things as well. We've really gone off on a yeah. tangent about folklore, and while I'm all we for that, slightly. we have definitely overrun our episode. Not that I'm sorry. Um, I feel like yeah. we should get Lorraine back we to talk about so folklore. We got so close sometime. to talking about fairies. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we got so close we were so close we were on the precipice but uh, jules reined it in but yeah i think lorraine come back let's talk about folklore yeah, let's talk about let's fairies do that. let's do it let's talk magic yes. and stuff <laughs> yeah um so as we wrap up uh where can people find you online lorraine um my twitter handle is rain clouds which is r-a-i-n-e underscore clouds and then i've got the link tree in my bio which has all the links to my website and my instagram and all of that kind of nonsense um and the links to where you can buy my book yes as well. um, it's going to come as no <laughs> surprise to anyone that this week's dissecting dragons recommendation is this is our undoing by lorraine wilson um guys the book has been out by the time this episode airs for about two days go and buy it just just, just put it put stop now just go and go and order it go and buy it you can actually go out to a bookshop and buy it now probably or order it at least yeah <laughs> um, you won't be sorry go buy it and spend the next few days in yeah in, in utter existential <laughs> no in, in all fairness once you get to the end of the book it's an incredibly uplifting book and you know this is coming from me and we know that I love the darkness and the misery. So if I'm saying it's uplifting, it's uplifting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And on that note, guys, we're going to say thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Lorraine, for coming onto the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've had a blast. Good. I'm so glad. And we will definitely have you back if you want us. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> if you still want us. <laughs> And on that note, guys, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.